Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on the hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there. Welcome to the hash here on Coindesk TV. I'm Zach Seward, joined today by Will Foxley, Jensen Assey, and Adam Levine. Good stuff. Good squad. We're glad to be here. All right. We got plenty to get to today, starting with another crypto lender in some hot water. Will, take it away. That's right, Zach. And it's not because of a lending scheme or anything of that sort at this moment. It's actually because of AML, uh, KYC laws over in Bulgaria. Questions around Nexo Finance's compliance with KYC laws. Uh, according to new reports, especially on Facebook is what we're seeing, actually, there's a Bulgarian government is looking into the KYC compliance of Nexo Finance, a pretty large lending provider out there, saying that there might even be some terrorist activity or terrorist-linked organizations on top of Nexo Finance. This comes, of course, after a lot of these bigger lenders collapsed during the last year. We can actually throw up the graphic right here in a second. We see that Nexo has a pretty complex scheme in terms of how it gets a lot of its rewards and yield for people who are using the application. And that has led to a lot of people thinking, well, maybe they're the next crypto company to falter. Uh, we see Celsius has collapsed. It's pretty complex. So a lot of people have been looking at them saying like, hey, maybe these are the next guys to falter. Uh, maybe this is the next Celsius, or the next Voyager. But we're seeing in this story that's a little bit different. Actually, there's more than just uh, risks on the lending side. There's risks with KYC. There's risks with different governments. Nexo Finance put out a few statements this morning, actually taking to Twitter, saying that it's pretty unfortunate that Bulgarian police have moved so aggressively against them, saying that it's uh, unfair in a lot of different ways. Jen, I want to throw the story over to you, get your take on what's happening here. So I zeroed in on what the attorney general said. He said that evidence has been collected that a person who used the platform and transferred cryptocurrencies has been officially declared a terrorist financing person. I think that, you know, I would love to hear more information here. When did this person use the platform? Did they provide authentic documentation and authentic information in, in the KYC process? Uh, it, they said that authorities kind of bombarded the office. It sounds a little bit extreme under the guise of 
tax and money laundering. The use of the word terrorist just reminds me what we hear in North America, right? When a lot of our politicians talk about investigations into crypto exchanges and crypto lenders right here in North America, they often use the words terrorists and money laundering and tax evasion. And so I wasn't surprised to see that. I want to reference the tweets, the Twitter thread, Will, that you brought up in your intro there. Nexo said that they have more than 30 AML compliance officers uh, and they work with Chainalysis to kind of really understand the history of the customers on their platform and where money is coming and going from. And so it will be interesting to see what comes out of here. Unfortunately, I think that authorities are using what's happening in the industry to act maybe in a way that they wouldn't act if this wasn't a company that interacted with crypto. But Adam, what do you think? It was a rough 2022 for crypto lenders. It looks like 2023 is getting off to a start with, uh, frankly, much of the same thing. Uh, it's, I think, interesting to see that they've survived to this point when many of their competitors in the space had an increasingly difficult time. Again, what we saw kind of in the early days is that people always want to be able to deposit their token somewhere and then get, earn yield on them, right? Earn more money with the money that they already have. What we saw was that in kind of the, the early days of the bull market, there were lots of opportunities and that was really, really uh, an easier task to deliver on. Companies can make a lot of money doing it. As the bull market kind of wore on, those opportunities sort of wore themselves out and the companies, frankly, grew too large to do that. So Nexo's somewhat complex scheme, uh, just by not having kind of run into those problems, I think demonstrates that they've done a somewhat better job or at least not a catastrophically bad job as perhaps some of the other uh, companies that are out there uh, who did not survive, you know, uh, have now gotten to this point. So it's interesting to see this. I think, again, the key word in all of this is allegations. Um, you know, at the point that we actually start to see some evidence come forward, uh, Jen, what you said there in terms of the you know purported thing that they did wrong, that feels like that's a real small issue to me uh, relative to the scope of the platform and the overall project. So I'm kind of in a wait and see mode on this one, curious to see what evidence comes out and I'll make a decision in terms of how I feel about it at that point. Zach, what do you think? I was going to say for this to be the Nexo headline is actually pretty good for Nexo. Everyone's been speculating that Nexo was potentially the next crypto lender to collapse. Hey, if some overzealous Bulgarian authorities are bringing up these charges and raiding the office on potential AML uh, or anti-terrorist financing charges, that could be the least of their worries, I think, in this broader environment where a lot of crypto lenders took on extremely risky behaviors and ultimately led to their downfall from Genesis to Celsius, you name it, BlockFi, right? These folks are in dire straits. And if Nexo is just dealing, and it's funny to say that, just dealing with this Bulgarian pro from law enforcement authorities over there, maybe that's a good sign relative to the broader state of the crypto lending industry. CFI is blowing up. And right now, Nexo is still standing somehow. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see if this uh, leads to their undoing or if this is just something that's a bit more procedural um, as it relates to complying with money laundering rules. All right, let's change gears. Let's go macro. Adam's here. We're going to talk macroeconomics. Take it away. Yeah, it's another CPI day. So new official <laughs> inflation numbers out this morning show the headline consumer price index, better known as the CPI, dropped by one-tenth of one percentage point last month. Uh, on an annualized basis, the official measure of inflation was higher by 6.5%, which was the expected result in consensus surveys, and down from 7.1% in November. In the days leading up to this morning's numbers, the rumor had been that inflation would actually drop a bit more than was expected. And so Bitcoin actually did pull back a bit initially when the predicted number came in. I gave mainstream economists a lot of flack because they're wrong almost all of the time, but the consensus actually did get this one right. 
Digging in just a bit, while goods inflation tumbled to its lowest level since February of 2021, services inflation actually soared to its highest since September of 1982. So a big, big number there again. Energy was the biggest driver of the decline. Energy prices are going down relative to where they had been, or at least the rate of increase of energy prices is going down. Uh, while food and shelter continued to rise pretty significantly. It's worth noting that official measures of inflation are on the way down, but these numbers are calculated differently than they were in the 1980s, which is the last time that we had such rapid increases in the prices of things that we need to live. Luckily, economist John Williams over at shadowstats.com continues to run the numbers through something close to the original methodology uh, that was used in the 1980s, viewed through the lens, which you can see on that chart to the side of me here. Uh, of the 1980s numbers, we're dropping below the 15% mark in this morning's report, which uh, not great news in absolute terms, but hey, I will be really happy to be back below 15% <laughs> with all these uh, you know, massage statistics. Uh, let's see. Uh, will, I'll kick it over to you. What do you think here? Yeah, I was just bringing it back into the crypto corner here. Inflation has been a, a strong reason to buy into Bitcoin or a big thesis people have pulled out over the years. You need to buy Bitcoin in order to protect yourself against the eventual inflation away at the US dollar. And that sort of thesis broke really hard this last year when we saw well, the Fed increase interest rates and then everything started tumbling downhill, tech stocks, Bitcoin, value stocks, those sort of things. If we're looking at the larger market right now, we're looking at the federal fund rate going up towards 5%. And we're all wondering how that's going to affect Bitcoin's price. And the federal fund rate is going up towards 5% because they're trying to get inflation below their official estimates. They want to get back towards 2% or even less, I think. Uh, and right now, that 6% level is pretty awful. So what I'm looking at when I'm looking at like Bitcoin prices, seeing if this is going to move at all. Last night, we had a nice little pump, which was cool to see. Uh, but I think it's just going to be pretty choppy for a while. Maybe just give like a little windy oh, price corner talk here for a second. The one thing I want to compare it to is gold, right? So like a lot of investors look at gold, they look at inflation, and think those two things should trade together. And gold did rise on this news a little bit, as did Bitcoin, which is cool to see those things move in tandem. So I think just like trotting it out to like a larger perspective or maybe a larger thesis is maybe gold and Bitcoin's time is now over the next few years instead of over the last two years. Over the last two years, Bitcoin really traded like a tech stock. And maybe with actual inflation occurring in the United States, actual inflation that seems to be fairly persistent, Bitcoin might actually have like a tenable claim to that thesis if it can continue to itch up as uh, inflation holds. Jen, I want to throw a topic over to you though. Yeah, well, you know, I'm just full of questions when it comes to the economy. So Adam, can you paint a picture for me, right? So does this mean that interest rates are going to decrease? And in, in my head, I'm like, okay, interest rates decrease. That means it's better for risky assets like crypto, like tech stocks. But with a recession looming, does any of this actually matter? Yeah, I think that that really is a good question. That's like the question that's kind of key to all of this stuff. When we talk about uh, kind of inflation and we talk about risk assets, really what we're talking about here is when will the Federal Reserve in the U.S. and central banks around the world return towards very, very low, artificially low costs to borrow money? At the point that they do that, that's when you see risk asset markets really take off. Because otherwise, like right now, the comparison is, well, I could have my money in stocks or I could be earning 5% lending money to the government. Uh, that 5% lending money to the government is a pretty safe bet. There are definitely concerns and Bitcoin and gold too. Also, both are, are essentially like they're extreme situation assets uh, in, in practice. Inflation is not really a good way to think about it. It's not about day-to-day -day inflation. It's about systemic risk to the dollar system itself. So when we get re uh, readings like this, 
What that then suggests to markets is that, oh, hey, the worst is going to be over. Markets are in what's known as forward-looking pricing mechanisms. Traders look into the future to figure out what they think prices will be you know, at some point uh, that's not today. And then they you know, buy up prices or they bid up prices or they bid down prices based on what they think the future holds. So what's happened over the course of the last couple of, uh, at this point, you know, like seven or eight months, is that the only thing that matters is the Federal Reserve. The only thing that matters is when will the Federal Reserve either face so much political pressure that it has to pull back on these rate hikes. And it's worth noting that the rate at the start of this process was one quarter of 1%, and we're now up over 4%. So that represents something like a 1,400% increase in the cost of money just in the last year, which is wild and unprecedented in any sort of example that you can think of historically. So I think that we are still at the whim of Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Whatever he says matters much more than anything in reality. And really, it's all a question of when will they give up and return to the easy monetary policy that they will ultimately need to continue to power the government without it going uh, insolvent, basically. So it's a, it's a real cheery topic. Hope I provided some clarity for you there. Zach, what do you think? <laughs> I got nothing. When will they give up? Is there anything in the tea leaves indicating that they will reverse course? Yeah, the consensus is basically later this year. The Fed has been laying out, has been saying very clearly, we're definitely not giving up this year. It's probably mid next year, something like that, mid 2024. Markets don't believe them. And that's one of the reasons why they have to continue to, to have this kind of mixed messaging where they're like, hey, things are getting better, but also they're bad and they'll be bad for a long time. So just expect that. That's what they want markets to do, because to the extent that markets aren't getting that messaging, markets go up because they don't believe the Fed. So <laughs> it's a weird situation. Like I said, markets aren't supposed to work like this. But hey, that's uh, that's the modern U.S. dollar economy for you. Probably we'll we leave it there. On. Another yeah. big CPI day. Lots of stuff happening in the markets. All right. Let's talk about Sam Bankman-Fried in what could be a first for someone awaiting a major trial on significant fraud charges. SBF has launched a Substack called SBF's Substack in which he lays out his version of what brought him to this predicament in which he currently sits. He's on house arrest in the Bay Area, Palo Alto, I believe. He is, uh, you know, has one of those little ankle monitors, can't leave the house, and he's taking his Substack to write down some thoughts. Lots of new details in here. Maybe not new, but interesting details. The takeaway here is that SBF is out here in the court of public opinion trying to get his story out there yet again. I got to throw this to Jen, the hashes unofficial lawyer. Jen, do you think the lawyers are happy about this one? I mean, this uh, you're seeing on the screen now that you can pledge your support for SBF Substack. He actually interacted with the Wall Street Journal reporter shortly after that was highlighted. And he said, oops, my bad. I'm turning that off. So that's old news. But as it relates to, again, spouting out all this information in an attempt to defend himself, what, like, what are the lawyers saying right now, Jen? I'm going to toss that to you. Well, what baffles me about this is he is on house arrest in a house where two lawyers live, his parents, and he's still out here creating a substack, getting his story out there. I think we've said from the beginning, this is not great because everything he's doing, everything he's publishing, everything he's saying can be used as evidence against him in court. And we know his former colleagues, former roommates are already making deals with the Fed. They're already revealing what they knew behind the scenes. And if what they say is in direct opposition to what he's saying online, which I think we, from what we know, we can say it will be, there's going to be a, he said, she said, he did, 
he or she did kind of situation scenario going on here. I don't think this looks good. And I don't know why he still has access to the internet. I don't know why this is being allowed by his lawyers or his parents. And it is just all baffling to me. And I also can't believe that he was charging $8 a month to read his musings. I thought that was very funny. And I am very thankful that he disabled that. Zach, I guess you got to pay the legal fees somehow. Hey, it was it was the honest mistake. No worries. No worries. <laughs> So many mistakes in his life. That's what he said. I don't know. Like he should just think before he acts. (laughs) This is the best possible timeline is all I'm going to say. That he's launching a substack to chronicle these thoughts as he awaits a major trial in October. He's got time. He's got nothing to do. He's putting it down, (laughs) pen to paper, getting the stories out there. It truly is remarkable. There was also a piece, I think it was in the news website Puck, in which he invited a reporter to his house, under which he's in house arrest to kind of get a feel for what the life of SBF is at this point in time. Kind of crazy that this continues to drag on. Uh, Again, in the court of public opinion, it's a bit of a circus, considering what this guy's facing toward the end of the year in terms of sentencing. Pretty significant jail time is what he's staring down, and he's turning to Substack to make some thoughts known. Will, what are you thinking? I'm thinking either this or a podcast. I think we're going to get a podcast later in the year. This is uh, prime territory for that. Maybe like a YouTube live stream. Definitely going to be joining Kobe at some point is my bet. Uh, I think this Substack itself was a little interesting. Like it was just sort of laying out a lot of numbers that he was saying in Twitter spaces, or he was just saying in uh, a lot of different uh, tweets that he's put out since he was going to arrest or since he was arrested and put in jail and then extradited to the United States. So a lot of that stuff wasn't very informative. However, I do think that it is interesting that he's still arguing this line and it's sort of positions him in a place where he's trying to say like, hey, I'm not evil person or I did do something dangerous. I just was bad at my job. And that's why he says here that FTX was between Voyager and Celsius, right? They, they weren't really like as uh, nefarious as Celsius, but they weren't really as good as Voyager. They were somewhere in the middle. And that's why FTX blew up. Another point just being here is that he takes another shot at Binance CEO CZ saying that it was his fault that he precipitated the whole event uh, and even went as far as saying that there was a PR smear campaign against FTX that was very uh, powerful, leading to uh, the collapse of FTX beforehand. So a few little shots in here, a few little digs in here. SBF can't seem to get away from them. Adam, up to you. Yeah, so I read the whole thing this morning. I thought it was very interesting. Echo all the comments that have been made so far. The thing that really jumped out to me was not just the, uh, the Binance uh, shot. He also took a shot at some of their attorneys who he thinks, uh, you know, acted against his best interest, uh, according to this. Basically, what this looks like to me is, on the one side, a person who's very, very, very smart and unable to address the problem that they caused and the crimes that they may have actually committed here. And he does not address, as usual, with these types of things. He never gets into, like, the, okay, but you borrowed $500 million dollars and then you bought, you know, the uh, you bought, you know, the Robinhood stock through an entirely separate entity. And now you're saying that it's charitable of you to offer that back. But where did that money come from in the first place? Right. There's a bunch of stuff like that where it's like he's so good at weaving a narrative. But the narrative, if you actually understand the details of what the real problem here is with FTX in general, from what we've learned so far, does not comport with the narrative that he's putting forward. So. I think that on the one side, he's desperate to control the narrative. And with that court date in October, that's a long period of time where typically he would just not be saying anything. And there would be lots of being said about him, I suspect, during that time. And I I just think he's desperate to keep what credibility and provenance he has within the space, because I don't think he has many friends anywhere else. 
So I think it's, again, it's sad. We're watching somebody who was very high flying essentially implode. Uh, and I don't think he's helping himself. I do think he's going to keep doing this. And I, you know, for me, it's all going to come down to the court, uh, to the court case and that we're not going to see that for quite some time. But we can move on. Jen, you've got the last story for the day. All right. Let's brighten the let's brighten up the mood a little bit. Talk about some NFTs. All right. NFT artists are selling out in seconds on Instagram. Who would have thought that this would be the story we'd be talking about at the end of this show? So early last year, Meta started testing NFT sharing and allowing some users to connect their wallets on Instagram. From there, they allowed some creators to start minting and selling those NFTs right from within the platform. This news analysis that was published on Coindesk this morning asks questions like, would seasoned NFT collectors be interested in purchasing assets on a Web2 platform as we move forward? And highlights the high associated fees with in-app purchases at between 15 and 30%. Adam, I'm going to kick it right back to you. What do you think of Instagram really kind of getting into the NFT game at this really feels like a thoughtful pace. They didn't really just like ape in. They're working with some prominent creators. They're rolling it out quite slowly. What do you make of this? I think that it takes time to do these types of things. When you're a big company of lots of institutional momentum, lots of priorities that you've already got going on, and it just takes time for these projects to come. So I don't think that they're like, hey, the market is terrible. Let's start launching these projects. I think this is something that's been in the works for like 18 months, and we're just kind of starting to see it come to fruition. Uh, it's not surprising to me that stuff is selling out like this. Uh, again, like the, the thing that NFTs really kind of introduced was, hey, here's an investment really. Again, like the term investment is problematic, but it's accurate for, for kind of how most people treat these things. Uh, you know, that actually appeals to me as an individual because I would collect art and this is just a digital form of art. So I think, again, the value of art is always in the context that surrounds it. It's always about the person who made the thing, you know, the situation in which it was made what it means. And I think that you're seeing that. So again, like in, in markets like this, it's not just, hey, let's ape into anything that can go on. It's like, what's a, what's a measured good thing? And then again, to the extent that they're seeing stuff sell out, that creates more fear of missing out, which then drives these sorts of cycles. So it won't surprise me at all if we see this cycle uh, accelerate, but quite curious to see where it goes and how far the implications are outside of the world of, you know, like Instagram and stuff like that. Zach? Yeah, there are a few signs of life uh, in the NFT market more broadly. The block was highlighting some data today saying that in December, NFT sales rose 13%. That's after eight months of consecutive declines. They were attributing some of that to uh, tax loss harvesting at the end of the year, but also some prominent projects seeing a bit of, uh, of fresh life with new drops and whatnot. So perhaps broadly, more broadly speaking, the NFT scene is seeing a bit of a bounce back relative to the rest of the market, just seeing complete carnage. And I think Adam is right, right? Like the art in context or like the fandom in context or like people just being enticed by digital collectibles for things that they already care about, regardless of the technology underlying these collectibles, right? And it's something I think we've seen with Reddit having some of its NFT or digital collectible success. And obviously Polygon, I think, is sort of on the frontier of sort of getting some of these more consumer-friendly NFT things moving. So perhaps some signs of life could just be people trying to optimize their taxes at the end of the year. But again, perhaps some signs of life in the, in the bigger NFT market here as we head into the new year. Wouldn't necessarily have predicted it, but interesting to see that both in Web 2 and perhaps more broadly in Web 3, the NFT thing is still breathing. Will, what are you thinking? Yeah, I'll give a quick take before we head off the show. My thinking with this is like if NFTs were adopted by Web 2 providers, we have different Ethereum use cases like NFTs, ICOs, DeFi. Maybe NFTs are the ones that sort of survive the best going to the next few years because there's that Web 2 presence. 
that DeFi and ICOs really didn't have because of a lot of regulatory issues, right? Where DeFi has done best, it's mostly because it's been implemented into very strong crypto communities, or it's had some sort of institutional adoption on top of it. ICOs basically didn't pan out because of securities laws. So for NFTs, I think uh, the, the fact there's like a legal pathway to use case there really means that it could succeed over the next few years in a way that I didn't think was possible when we first started the show. So there's something. Zach, I'll throw it up to you before we end. I'll end it. That was a nice note to end on. Will, reflecting on his long streak of not so great <laughs> NFT Still don't love NFTs for the record. <laughs> That's true. No, he's still record. holding yeah. strong. I like that. You we will. like that about you. Still holding strong. That's good stuff. All right, that's it for the show today. I wanted to mention that Coindesk TV is going to be in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum. That's where all the big shots from around the world get together and talk about the state of the economy and more. Crypto is certainly part of that conversation and Coindesk TV will be there to chronicle it. So check that out. It starts next week, January 16th through 20th. Davos, baby, Davos. All right, that's Woo! it for the show today. I'm Zach, Adam, Jen, Will. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for watching The Hash. Thanks for listening to The Hash. Thanks for just being you. We hope you're having a great week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.